Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hi, everybody. This is Peter Schiff. Welcome to another live podcast. I am recording this one or broadcasting this one from my house in Connecticut. Now, unfortunately, I can't use my Connecticut studio because the room where my studio is, is having construction work done on it. There was some kind of damage. Uh, There was water leaking up through the floor. And so we had to completely gut the room and they're doing the work now. So I can't use the studio. So I'm using a laptop computer instead down here in my basement. And so get used to the laptop because I'm going to be bringing this with me on my trip uh, to London. I leave tomorrow and I will be there for about six days. And so the next podcast also and all the podcasts over the summer, I am going to be doing them from my uh, from my laptop. You know, by the way, too, just out of coincidence, you know, I got here to uh, to Connecticut and I talked to my wife about the sponsor for this podcast, um, Fast Growing Trees. And it turns out we already have several of their trees on the property because Lauren has been a customer uh, long before they became an advertiser. So that, that's good to know. But anyway, I want to get into today's podcast. The most important thing I want to discuss is what's happening right now live. In fact, I was watching on YouTube the floor of the House of Representatives where they are getting ready to vote to raise the debt ceiling. In fact, they're not actually raising the debt ceiling because these cowards don't have the courage to raise the debt ceiling. They're just suspending it. Now, they've done that before. This isn't the first time they used that, you know, that trick. But the reason they don't want to vote to raise the debt ceiling is because the number would be so huge. In fact, in order to get through the next two years, which is when the suspension uh, is good for. It takes us through the next election. So the uh, suspension will uh, run out during a lame duck session of Congress after we already have the results of the 2024 uh, election. But if they actually wanted to raise the ceiling by a large enough amount to get us through to that time, I think they need like a $5 trillion increase in the national debt. That's how big the budget deficits are. Nobody wants to vote for that. Can you imagine having to explain why you voted for the biggest increase in the national debt in history? So rather than doing that, they just vote to suspend the ceiling and they never have to have the embarrassment 
of actually voting for a $5 trillion increase. Now, if you look at the, the, the projections for the budget, they're only projecting about $4 trillion of debt over the next two years, which would still be a record. But there's no chance those projections are going to be accurate because they're based on unrealistically rosy economic assumptions. If you have a more realistic set of assumptions that it's likely to be closer to 5 trillion, if not more than 5 trillion. And that's why I came up with that number. But, you know, the only thing that's, I think, more frustrating or more comical or ridiculous than the fact that they're raising the debt ceiling is what they named the bill that is going to raise the debt ceiling. I've talked about this on this podcast for years about how legislation often has a name of the opposite of what the legislation itself accomplishes, right? And, you know, it's it's very uh, hypocritical of Congress to go after the private sector, right? They don't like it when pharmaceutical companies or, uh, you know, cable companies or you name it, uh, they're always policing their advertising. We can't have any false advertising. Well, the biggest false advertising is in the naming of bills that pass the Congress and get signed by the president. Because again, the bills accomplish the opposite of what they're titled. Because most Americans don't read these bills. So when the congressmen want to go back to campaign, they want to talk about what they voted for. So they pass a bill that raises taxes and they call it tax simplification. Because, you know, everybody's in favor of tax simplification. So it's easy to vote for the tax simplification bill. You don't want to vote for the tax hike bill, right? They did the same thing with the Patriot Act, right? The most unpatriotic piece of legislation ever passed. And they titled that the Patriot Act, right? Nobody wants to vote for the anti-Patriot Act. No, they want to be patriotic. So they mislabel the, um, the legislation. That's what they did with the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act had nothing to do with it reducing inflation. All it did was increase inflation. But no congressman wants to come home to their constituents and defend a vote for the Inflation uh, um, Acceleration Act. No, they want to say, I voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, even if the act itself increased inflation that you're pretending you reduced. Well, this title, you know, trumps them all. <laughs> the title of this bill is the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. I'm not making this up. The Fiscal Responsibility Act. So they are voting for the biggest increase in the national debt ceiling in history. They are voting to allow excessive government spending and deficits to continue for another two years, making the problem much worse. And they're calling that acting fiscally responsible. The only fiscally responsible thing to do is to vote against this bill. But only a handful of Republicans are going to do that. Now, there's actually going to be some Democrats voting against it, too, for opposite reasons. See, the Democrats don't care about the debt. They don't like some of these, you know, trivial spending cuts. Like there is some, I think, minimal increase in the work requirements in order to get uh, Medicare, uh, not Medicare, food stamps. 
And they're talking about these cuts to government spending. You know, the Republicans are out there bragging, the ones who are voting for this monstrosity. They're claiming this is some kind of significant milestone for conservatives. We finally are tackling government spending and deficits. They're not tackling anything. The deficits go way up. Even if you believe the press, they only claim about one and a half trillion of deficit reduction over 10 years. That means 150 billion a year. But even those cuts don't actually happen until the later years. And none of them are actually going to happen because, again, they're all based on overly optimistic economic assumptions. No inflation, low interest rates, low unemployment, no recessions. I mean, everything is perfect in order to get these so-called reductions in the deficit. But again, the cuts that they're talking about are reductions in the rate of increase, not real cuts, and they only affect a tiny part of the budget. None of the uh, big ticket items are, items are there. I mean, national defense actually increases, and they admit that. Uh, there are increases that are automatically built in, Social Security, Medicare, right? Th those are off the table. Interest on the national debt is exploding. So all the big stuff is exempted. I mean, they're only talking about trivial, non-existent cuts in what amounts to a tiny part of the budget. I mean, even if we got 1.5 trillion in spending cuts or, or 1.5 trillion in deficit reduction, right? That's what they're talking about. Not 1.5 trillion in spending cuts, but deficit reduction. Even if we got that, that's only about 5% or less than 5% of the deficits that they're projecting over the next 10 years. And of course their projections are too low, but even if you accept their projections and you accept their ridiculous assumptions, you're still talking about the deficits over the next 10 years being 5% less than they would be if they didn't make the cuts, but they're already enormous. In fact, when they're talking about freezing government spending, they forget how much government spending increased since COVID. How are you going to freeze spending at these bloated levels? You have to reverse spending. You have to make real substantive cuts to government spending in order to do anything about the problem. But this bill does nothing. And unfortunately, this is exactly what I said was going to happen from day one. I knew that at the end of the day, all of the you know chest pounding uh, was going to mean nothing. We weren't going to default on the debt. We were going to raise the debt ceiling just like we've done every single time we hit it. And yes, we were going to do it in a way where Congress can lie about it, where the Republicans can pretend they've actually done something because we had this big fight and now they want to pretend that we actually got something as a result of this big fight. They got nothing. You know, maybe the Republicans are responsible for the name, the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Now, now they can go back home and tell their conservative constituents how they voted for the Fiscal Responsibility Act because they're responsible when in fact there's no responsibility whatsoever in this act. It is the height of irresponsibility. And again, it's exactly what I predicted would happen. And you know, when I'm watching uh, the congressmen talk about this on the floor before they get ready to cast their votes, and we know it's going to pass uh, because they already passed some amendment to bring it to the floor. And the fact that they were able to get the votes for that, well, this is you know going to happen. It's, it's, it's basically a sure thing. But to hear the Democrats talking, the real crisis is the debt ceiling. 
A lot of these guys are saying we need to eliminate the debt ceiling so that we don't have a crisis. And they're talking about all of the problems that American families would be struggling with if we didn't raise the debt ceiling because we might have to default. And they're talking about how a default would hurt American families because, you know, it would increase the interest rates on their car loans or their mortgages because it would, you know, diminish the the credit rating of the U.S. government. And so interest rates would rise. But what these Democrats completely overlook is the impact of the deficits on American families. Somehow they think the deficits have no impact. It's just the limit on the deficits that has an impact. No. Who do the Democrats think are on the hook to repay all these deficits? It's the American families that they're pretending to care about. Interest rates are going to be much higher in the future because of these deficits. Inflation is going to be much higher in the future because of these deficits. If you really care about the American family, then stop burdening them with the responsibility to repay all these deficits, either through taxes or inflation. If you care about the American family, you will not raise the debt ceiling because that means you're saying, American families, we're not going to burden you with any more debt. The debt that you have right now is it. We're going to stop here and we're going to try to reduce the burden of debt. No, what the Democrats say is we want to get rid of the debt ceiling so there's no limit to how much debt we can pile on the back of the American family and obligate them to repay either through uh, taxation or, or inflation. But again, it's not just the Democrats I want to criticize for blaming the problem on the ceiling. I want to criticize the Republicans for, play, for claiming they've done something about it, for claiming they've actually won a hard Uh, fought victory on behalf of the taxpayer, on behalf of the American public, when they've sold out the American public and the taxpayer. This deal is a complete farce. Everything from the name of the deal to to what's inside it is a fraud on the American public. In fact, I would not vote to reelect anybody who voted for this, including any Republican who voted for this. Uh, They should not be sent back to office. What is the point? You might as well send a Democrat there. I think the only ones worthy of re-election are the ones who opposed it because those are the only ones who might make a difference in the future. And, you know, if this is all we can get, if you've got these Republicans talking about how this is this great accomplishment and they've accomplished nothing, well, clearly they're never going to do anything. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to have a crisis. We're going to have a crisis, but not because... We didn't raise the debt ceiling, but because we did, because the crisis that's coming is the debt crisis. That is the problem, and it's going to lead to a currency crisis, massive inflation. The American families are going to pay through the nose because of what Congress has been doing, including the most recent bill, this Fiscal Responsibility Act, that is about to pass uh, the House, and then we'll go on to the Senate and eventually to Biden's death for signature. Let me take a quick break. We got this commercial and we'll be right back. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right. You know, one of the assumptions, of course, in the 10-year budget is that we make it through 10 years without a recession, even though we're pretty much in a recession right now. Uh, And that recession is going to get a lot worse. And in fact, 
most of the next 10 years probably will be spent in recession. Whether or not uh, the government wants to acknowledge it officially, uh, we're going to be living through it. But I want to even talk about some of this economic data that has come out, starting with some data that we got last week that I haven't had a chance to speak about. And of course, nobody else talks about it because it has to do with the trade deficit. We got the merchandise trade deficit for the month of April. And the expectation was for an $85.6 billion deficit, which is a big deficit, right? They were expecting a horrible trade deficit. Of course, nobody cares because they've been horrible for so long, we've just gotten used to it, right? So no one really gives a damn about how bad these trade deficits are. Well, the trade deficit that came out on last week, I forget the date, but that trade deficit was so much worse than expected. It was $96.8 billion. The high end of the range of expectations was $88 billion. So that is an enormous jump, almost $100 billion in one month in merchandise trade. And if you look at how we got there, there was a 1.8% increase in imports and a 5.5% decline in exports. Now, the exports are measuring the health of the domestic economy. Now, I know a lot of these economists want to claim, no, the exports are bad because the foreign economies are weak and they can't afford to buy our stuff. That is BS. The, the reality is it's our economy that's too weak to produce the stuff. And, of course, we're having to import a lot of products. If we had a strong economy, we could produce the stuff that we consume and we would have a trade deficit. Again, these economists like to say the increase in our imports shows how strong our economy is. No, it shows how weak our economy is because if we had a strong economy, we wouldn't have to import this stuff. We could produce it ourselves. We're not producing it ourselves because we have a economy that's too weak to generate this production. But so not only do we have these surging budget deficits, but we have these surging trade deficits. And the message that we have sent to the world today and that we will send, you know, as Biden ultimately signs this, is that America is never going to get its fiscal house in order, that the deficits are going to rise forever, that even all of this bravado, this big, you know, we need cuts, we need cuts, you know, we're going to, we'll default if we don't get cuts. We got nothing, nothing. So this is a, a, a shining example of why it's never going to get any better. And the only ceiling that's going to matter is the lending ceiling. When lenders say, no loss, I'm not buying any more U.S. government debt. See, right now we're talking about our own imposed limit on how much debt we're willing to take on. Well, sure, we'll take on as much debt as our creditors are dumb enough to lend us. What's more important is when those dumb creditors decide they don't want to throw their good money after bad and they cut us off. And they should cut us off when they realize that we're never going to stop. The deficits will continue. The spending will continue. And so ultimately, the dollar has to collapse because inflation has to run out of control. And none of these bonds are going to be worth anything. It doesn't matter if we don't default. We're going to repay our debts with money that doesn't have much value or maybe no value. 
And so I think this is very bearish for the dollar, even though the dollar's been rallying and it rallied again today. You know, and part of the rally was due to some better than expected inflation numbers that came out of the Eurozone. Although last week we got worse than expected inflation numbers out of the UK. I mean, they're still printing over 10%, I think, uh, year over year. But the, the numbers in Eurozone were a little bit lower than expected. And ironically, again, that sent the Euro down, although uh, it recovered a good chunk of those losses by, by the close. Um, but I think this is bearish for the dollar, right? People maybe thought that, oh, you know, it would be bad if they didn't raise the debt ceiling. No, it's bad if they do. And again, this should be good for gold. Raising the debt ceiling means more debt, more inflation. That is positive for gold. You know, gold has had a pullback recently. I'll get to that a little bit later in the, in the, in the podcast. But all of this uh, should be bullish for gold and, and bearish for the dollar. Another piece of economic news that we got last week, again, real bad. I mean, almost all the news was worse than expected. I'm just focusing on a couple of ones that were particularly problematic uh, late last week. The Chicago PMI, right? That was supposed to be 47. It came out at 40.4. Actually, no, that that is today's data. That number came out today. I, I, I jumped ahead of myself. Hold on, I got... I got my, uh, my, my slides mixed up here. The Richmond Fed manufacturing. Let me, let me talk about that one first because that was last week. That was supposed to improve from minus 8, from minus 10 in April to minus 8 in, uh, in May. And instead of improving, it got worse. It went to minus 15. So it was already bad at minus 10. And then it came out to minus 15. Now, we know we're not manufacturing because that's one of the reasons that our trade deficit went up. That's one of the reasons our exports went down because we can't export stuff that we don't make. And if we're not making stuff, well, that's gonna be reflected in these weak manufacturing numbers. And that is exactly what's happening. The other data point I wanted to talk about from last week that came out on Friday, which was um, uh, one that the markets did pay attention to, unlike the trade deficit, which you know they completely ignored. And that's the personal income and, and spending numbers. And the income number was pretty much in line. It was up 0.4. But the spending was up double estimates. They were looking for up 0.4 and we got up 0.8. Now, why are Americans spending so much more money? Well, obviously, it's because stuff costs more money. That's the real reason that spending is going up because prices are going up because of inflation. And in fact, even in the data, the PCE, and apparently, you know, this is the Fed's favorite way to measure inflation. And that's because it's the least accurate, right? It's the lowest number because it has the most substitution and hedonics and, you know, sleight of hand. That's why the Fed likes it because it, you know, it puts the best possible spin on inflation. But even those numbers, they were looking for the month over month PCE to go up by 0.3. It went up by 0.4. But more important, the prior month in March, it was only up by 0.1. So we went from 0.1 in March to 0.4 in April. Despite the rate hikes, these numbers are going in the wrong direction. The same thing uh, for the core. The core PCE was supposed to go up 0.3. It went up 0.4 versus 0.3 uh, in the prior month. And look at the year-over-year -year numbers. Last month, the year-over-year -year increase in the PCE was 4.2. Now it's 4.4. 4. 
higher than the 4.3 expected, but more important, above the 4.2, going in the wrong direction. And if you take the core year over year, stripping out food and energy, again, 4.7 for April. It was 4.6 in March, going in the wrong direction. Inflation numbers are getting higher, not lower. So how has the Fed made progress? How are we moving inflation towards 2% when it's moving in the opposite direction right now? And rates are already at five and a quarter, and we're potentially going to get another rate hike in a couple of weeks during the June meeting when rates are going to be, what, five and a half, five and three quarters, right? Adding to the inflationary pressures that are already in the economy because we are increasing the interest expense that everybody has to pay on the enormity of debt that already exists. Now, I want to get to the uh, the data from this week. I just started with the um, Chicago PMI. I already kind of, uh, you know, let let the cat out of the bag on that one because I, I read it off. But again, I'll, I'll say it again. That came out earlier today. And it was a horrific number. This is like the worst Chicago PMI um, uh, you know, since the financial crisis. It was supposed to be 47, you know, a little bit down from the 48.6 in April. And it plunged to 40.4. I mean, the, the low end of the range was 44.5 and we're a full 10% below that number. This is a horrific number uh, for uh, the Chicago PMI. And of course, we've been down, I forget, something like 13 or so months in a row. So it, it, we've been in recession for a long time, according to this number, and it's actually getting worse. Now, when this number came out initially, there was a sharp rise in the price of gold, about $10, $12 immediately. Gold spiked when this number came out because this is bad news on the economy. But then about 15 minutes later, we got the JOLTS report. And then gold lost almost the entire rally. Didn't quite go negative. It went you know, from up like 10, 12 bucks to up maybe two or $3. As soon as this JOLTS number came out, which kind of boggles the mind because the JOLTS number showed a huge increase in the number of jobs, openings, over 10 million. You know, it was 9.59 million in, May, in, in March. And that was revised up to 9.745 million. And the consensus for April was for a drop to 9.35. I mean, why do people think this? Well, people are losing their jobs. All these layoffs are being uh, announced. People are, you know, losing their jobs. And now you have all, you know, people uh, implementing or starting to implement AI. And you're getting some job losses there. But you have job losses in the banks and the financials. And uh, a lot of these companies, money losing companies, are having to cut their burn because they don't have access to capital. Uh, so, you know, people expected the number to come down. Instead, it went way up, which makes no sense. I don't even believe these numbers. Uh, you know, one thing in this is they give you the so-called quits rate, which, you know, lets you know how many people are quitting their jobs. And that went way down. And so that doesn't show a strong economy because normally, you know, you don't quit your job unless you think it's easy to get a better job. So in a strong job market, people are likely to quit, right? But if the job market is weak, uh, you're kind of going to stay put. You don't want to take your chances uh, in the labor market because you may not get something as good as the job you have. And so the fact that the quits rates are going down would suggest that the labor market is not really as robust as this JOLTS report 
uh, would suggest. So, but this is the only really strong number that we've had uh, in the last week and a half. I mean, we've had a couple of numbers that might have been slightly in line or a little bit better, but not like that. But most of the numbers have been like the Chicago PMI, maybe not quite as bad as this one, but they've been worse than expected, and they're all flashing recession as the Fed is hiking rates and as inflation continues to get worse. But meanwhile, the markets in the month of May have been oblivious to all that. Right? They're not paying attention to any of the stuff that's really going on. Uh, nobody sold in May and went away uh, unless you're talking about people who own gold stocks. But May was a huge month for the stock market, particularly uh, the NASDAQ. I want to go over that. So the the month of May, which ended today, this was the last day of, of, of the month. And the NASDAQ was up 6% in May, 6%. And if you look at the NASDAQ 100, right, the QQQ is the ETF for the NASDAQ 100, the biggest NASDAQ stocks, that was up 8% in the month. That's it. I mean, it's a huge number led by NVIDIA, right? NVIDIA, excuse me. NVIDIA was the biggest gainer. It was up 36.5%. And that was with like a 5% decline. I think it was down today by that much. Let me just, I'm going to take a quick look at it. 5.6% on the day. But even with that decline, you still had like 36.5% increase on the month. And you had other stocks, Google, uh, Meta, a lot of these big stocks that are perceived to be the, the main beneficiaries, the initial beneficiaries of uh, the uh, AI uh, revolution, those stocks saw the biggest inflows and the biggest gains during the month of May. Now, if you take those stocks out of the game, you know, there really wasn't much going on. In fact, the S&P 500 was only up about a third of a percent during the month, all of those gains attributed to the, the big tech stocks that are part of the, um, the S&P 500. If you look at the Russell 2000, which doesn't have all these tech stocks, it was down 1%. The, the Dow was down 3.5%. That's a pretty big decline in one month, especially when you consider the 8% gain in the NASDAQ 100. In fact, the divergence between the NASDAQ and the Dow has not been this big since the bubble, the, the dot-com bubble of the late 1990s. That's where you have to go to find this kind of divergence. So the tech stock buyers have been oblivious to all of the problems uh, underlying the economy and the rising interest rates, rising inflation. All they're thinking about is this AI revolution, which may in fact have some very positive uh, effects on productivity in the long run, but they're not going to be that immediate. And you know, a lot of people are focusing on the so-called deflationary effects of AI and that it helps to bring down uh, costs because it increases productivity. And so companies can now produce more goods for lower costs and, and all that is true. And that's not deflation, that's just capitalism. That's how capitalism works. It lowers prices. Government raises prices by creating inflation. Now, normally what happens is the government creates more inflation than capitalism creates productivity. And of course, capitalism 
creates less productivity when you burden it with more government. But what has been happening for the 20th century and now the 21st century is inflation has been the stronger factor than rising productivity. And so we lose the productivity gains and we end up with rising prices. Now, prices would rise even more if we didn't have the increasing productivity. But if we didn't have the inflation, prices would have dropped and, and that would have been great. But the reason I think that uh, AI, at least in the in short run, is going to actually result in more inflation, despite increasing productivity, is when companies lay off workers, because that's where the increased productivity comes from, because you're eliminating workers and you're replacing them with, with AI, right? So you don't need as many people. It's not just so each employee, you know, uh, can have more AI. It's to eliminate the employee and to use the AI instead of the employee. That's where you get uh, the significant cost savings, which lead to the greater productivity. But the problem is when people get laid off, the government loses a lot of revenue because all those workers were paying taxes and the companies were paying taxes on those workers too. There's a big payroll tax in addition to the income tax. And so when these people lose their jobs, the government loses a lot of tax revenue. In addition to that, now the government's got to spend money on unemployment, on food stamps, on all this stuff. So AI in the short run is going to explode the budget deficits of the United States. That's going to lead to even more money printing. And so, yes, businesses will be more productive, but the government's going to produce a whole hell of a lot more money. And I think in the short run, the money printing is going to trump the increased productivity. And so prices are going to go up because uh, the dollar is collapsing. Now, in terms of gold, yes, you're going to see prices coming down. And AI will accelerate the degree to which prices fall in terms of real money, gold, but is going to end up increasing the rate at which they go up in terms of fake money, uh, fiat money, uh, like dollars. Now, actually turning to gold. Well, before I get to gold, I wanted to point out, so the ARK Innovation Fund, uh, Kathy Wood, who, by the way, you know, ended up selling all of her NVIDIA uh, before the big rally. So she missed out on this. Apparently, she thought, you know, the valuation was too high. Now, I, I, I didn't think there was a stock that she could even believe that a valuation was too high because I didn't think valuation even mattered uh, to uh, Kathy Wood. But apparently it did. And so she sold uh, NVIDIA and she missed out on, on this big gain. Uh, but she got a lot of gains, obviously, during the month because the ARK Innovation Fund, even without NVIDIA, was up 12.7%. Imagine how much it would have been up had it contained, you know, the, the NVIDIA allocation. But in contrast, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which normally has a very strong correlation with uh, the ARK in, uh, ETF innovation, it fell 5.5% on the month. That's a big drop, especially when you compare it to what was going on with tech stocks. Uh, so Bitcoin seems to have decoupled from the tech story, right? It's, it's, it's going down, not up. Now, some people think, well, no, it's now correlated with gold. Not really. I mean, gold was only down 1.3% on the month. You know, that's not a big drop. I mean, there was a big drop in gold mining stocks but not in the metal itself. The GDX, the, you know, this, the senior gold miners, was down 8% on the month, the opposite of what happened to the, the, the NASDAQ 100. 
NASDAQ 100 up 8%. Gold, big gold stocks down 8%. The, the small ones, the juniors, were down a little less, actually. They were down 6.5%. But this shouldn't be happening. Right? This, you know, the environment that we're in right now is very bullish for gold stocks, and it's actually bearish for tech stocks. It doesn't matter right now about the AI. Uh, the rising interest rates and the inflation are a bigger factor uh, than, than, than AI. And of course, the main beneficiaries of AI have got to be the overall economy, not just these tech stocks. Right? It's got to be basic industries who are implementing the AI in order to increase their productivity. It's not just some of these tech companies that are selling the stuff. It's got to be beneficial to all the other companies who are buying the stuff. But none of that is uh, is in the numbers right now. Where, I got forgot to turn off my my cell phone. Um, where was I? Yeah. Um, so I I think that this was a a a a decoupling of crypto with tech, which I think is bad for for the crypto because that's where it's it's gotten all of its mojo from uh from the tech market but it hasn't reasserted itself as as digital gold and i think the next thing that you're going to see is a rise in the price of gold and i think this debt ceiling increase can be the catalyst to get the move of gold above 2000 where it can stay i mean right now as i speak the price of gold is below uh 2000 it's 1900 and $64 an ounce. But, you know, compared to where we started the year, gold is still nicely higher, but it should be a lot higher and it will be. In fact, there are a lot of people who were worried that the failure to raise the death ceiling would be a problem because it would cause uh, a flight to the dollar because people would be looking for safe havens and everything was going to go down. I always thought the opposite. I always thought that the problem or the good thing for gold would be, or rather, excuse me, they thought that if we, if there was a default on the debt ceiling, that that would be good for gold, right? That that people would run to gold because, oh, treasuries are in trouble, the government was defaulting, that people needed gold because they worried about a default. I've always thought it was the opposite. People wanted, the reason you want gold is because we're not gonna default. We're gonna print instead. We're gonna raise the debt ceiling. We're gonna keep creating uh, deficits. We're gonna keep creating inflation. And that is what is bullish for gold. And that's why the price of gold, I think, is headed a lot higher as a result of this increase in um, in the debt ceiling. And, you know, all these Fed officials, too, I, I was listening to quite a few of them again over the course of the next week, talking tough on inflation, right? And a lot of these guys and gals are, are saying that it's going to be hard to get inflation back down to 2%, that it's starting to get entrenched and, you know, it's it, it's harder than they thought. And, you know, so they're going to have to work, you know, harder as far as hiking rates and, and, and you know, keeping them higher for longer in order to, um, to bring the inflation rate back down. But if that's the case, don't, why didn't they know that? I mean, you know, I was talking on this podcast for years about all the, the adages about inflation, one in particular, you know, don't let the inflation genie out of the bottle. Why? Because everybody knows, every central banker knows that if you let that inflation genie out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in, right? That's where the saying comes from. 
right? The sayings have their basis in facts, right? Because people experienced it. So now all of a sudden, all these guys who are at the Fed are surprised to learn this? This is obvious, right? This was Central Banker 101. You don't let that inflation genie out of the bottle because it's very hard to put it back in. They're acting like, oh, we didn't know this. Oh, we're surprised that this is not an easy thing to do. I was warning about this when, when they were so cavalier. Remember how uh, Powell was talking in the past and Bernanke when they were just keeping rates at zero uh, and doing QE in the face of rising inflation numbers? And remember when they said, look, you know, we could be above 2% because we you know now we're interested in, in average inflation because we have to make up for the years where it was below 2%. What was I saying back then? I was talking about how dangerous this was. They were playing with fire because they were willing to let the inflation genie out of the bottle. They said they were not worried about inflation getting too high because they said, that's no problem. They said, we know how to deal with that. We have the tools to bring inflation back down as if it was going to be easy. It was no big deal. So they can be uh, you know, extra easy and they can air on the, the side of too much inflation. And that's, they said this. They said, look, we, you know, we want to wait until we see the whites of inflation's eyes. They said specifically, we don't want to be preemptive. Because the reason they said they didn't want to be preemptive is they said, what if we're wrong? What if we're worried about inflation and we take some action and it turns out we didn't need to do it? Well, you know what I said at the time, that's better than not doing anything when you should have and then you're behind the curve because you've let the inflation genie out of the bottle. They said they were willing to do that because they said it would be so simple to put it back in. And I was out there in real time saying, what are these guys? You know, are, are they nuts? Do they not know anything about basic economics or how difficult it would be, especially now? Because the further, you know, the longer you let the inflation out, right, the further behind the curve you are by the time you try to fight it, the more difficult to fight the higher their interest rates that are going to be required, the more shrinking of the balance sheet that's going to be required. Well, when you lever up the economy so much, when you have this massive level of debt, having to fight inflation when you have even more debt creates even more collateral damage for the economy. So none of this uh, was out of left field. All this should be expected. So none of these people at the Fed have the slightest bit of competence when it comes to inflation or understanding inflation or what needs to be done. Uh, yet nobody calls these guys out on any of this stuff. I mean, I, I call them out on it, but no one else does. You know, another thing too that I just noticed was about to happen, we'll see, is that all the people who have student loans, I think starting next month in June, they have to start making their payments. They haven't made their payments since COVID. I mean, why, are, why were those COVID emergency, right? During COVID, the idea was, oh, people aren't working, so we got to say they don't have to pay their student loans. Well, you know, a lot of people were working through COVID. They worked from home, and a lot of people got a vacation paid. They got paid more to stay at home than they earned. So why couldn't they make the payments on their student loans? I mean, there was no reason for people to stop making those payments, but they did because Congress wanted to get the votes of people with student loans. They wanted to seem compassionate. And so they said, okay, during COVID, no one has to make any payments on their loans. No interest, no penalties. It's just like, we're just gonna freeze everything. Well, this is you know June now of 2023. 
It's been a long time since anyone was locked down, yet no one's been making these payments. Now, what have people been doing with the money that they would have used to make their student loan payments? It's not like they've been putting it in a bank somewhere, ready to send it to the government. No, they've been spending all that money. And of course, they didn't accumulate any additional interest or penalties, right? So why? Why bother? Their, their, their payments are just resuming. But the thing is, they've been using that money. That has been extra spending in the economy. Now, of course, it's been extra deficits for the government because they haven't collected that those interest payments. Uh, and so now there could be a reduction in the debt from that, you know, from people starting to pay their loans. I just think a lot of people aren't going to pay. They, they just don't have the money. That's the problem. They're, they're not going to pay. They've been using all that money to pay the rent, to pay uh, for their groceries, to pay their utilities and their insurance. They probably don't have the money. But to the extent that they do make these payments, what are they going to cut back on in order to afford it? This is going to be a major shock for a lot of households who now have to start paying on these student loans. You know, and th these are, you know, significant amounts of payments that a lot of people have to have to make. So that is something uh, that is coming up. But I want to uh, finish up this podcast by talking about this art project that I announced on Twitter last week. And it's, of course, it, it resulted in all kinds of publicity in the crypto community because I announced that I'm going to be auctioning off a painting, an oil painting that a friend of mine painted, an artist, very talented artist that I know uh, from Puerto Rico. But a year ago, I, I had him paint me this painting. And he is having doing a show. He's got a gallery opening in Manhattan uh, on June 1st, tomorrow. And so I decided, you know what, let's I'm going to sell this painting, right, and, and put it in your gallery. And, you know, I'm going to put it up for sale. But he's a big Bitcoin guy. I mean, you know, we've, you know, argued about Bitcoin for five years. You know, he's got a lot of money there. He's one of the, you know, original Bitcoin investors, miners. So he's, he's got a lot of money, you know, in Bitcoin. You know, eventually he's going to lose it. But for now, you know, it's still, still a lot of money. But um, and so we decided to take this painting. And when you buy the original oil painting, you would get not an NFT, but this new uh, equivalent of an NFT on the Bitcoin blockchain called an ordinal. So when you buy the, the, the art, you also get an ordinal that basically, uh, you know, demonstrates authenticity that you own this piece of art, because when you sell the art, you can also sell the ordinal that will authenticate that you own this original work of art. Now, in addition to the original, we created 50 prints and they're numbered and they're signed and the original oil painting is signed by me and the artist market price and the two of us are signing all of these uh the 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 the, the prints and so each print will also have an ordinal and, and so again the value isn't the ordinal it's the actual print the original numbered print that exists that you can put in a frame and hang it on the wall right that's where the value is as far as i'm concerned the ordinal simply is a way to uh evidence ownership like title to a car right is is the value of your car the the, the piece of paper the, the the title no it's the car itself that's what gives you the value the title just makes it easier for you uh to prove that you own it 
and to sell it to somebody so that the buyer can prove that they own it, right? So that's what these ordinals are, are going to do. And yes, I, I see some value uh, in that, right? And, and each ordinal is, you can put it on one Satoshi, right? So there's, you know, 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. Every Bitcoin has 100 million Satoshis. So to the extent that this takes off, there's no shortage of Satoshis. There's, there's plenty of them to go around, right? If you want to uh, do it on Bitcoin. So I don't see this as a necessary uh, bullish thing for Bitcoin. But if you look at the way the Bitcoin community is spinning this, it's like I finally converted. Like, welcome, welcome, Peter. Finally, we've been waiting all these years and you're one of us. You know, you finally flipped. We got you. You're promoting Bitcoin. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Look at the art. It's a bar of gold. I, it's an arm holding a bar of gold in the air. And it's called um, Golden Triumph. What is gold triumphing over? It's triumphing over Bitcoin. That's what it's doing, right? So I am paying tribute to gold. <laughs> and the Bitcoin community is using this image of a gold bar triumphantly raised overhead, right? High in the air, a heavy, big, real bar of gold. And somehow this represents my capitulation. Uh, and now I'm part of the Bitcoin community. It's not. But yes, I mean, is it a tiny olive branch in that, yes, I am doing it in conjunction with Bitcoin and ordinals? Yes. And in fact, if you want to bid on the, the, the actual original painting, and again, that's going to be on display at this auction. I mean, at this gallery, you can go there in New York. It's 295 Madison Avenue. It's on the corner of 41st Street and Madison Avenue. So a very central location in Manhattan. Uh, and you can see the painting. It'll be there on display. I'm going to be there on June 9th. So if you want to be there when I'm there, from 7 to 9 p.m., we'll have a party there. There's going to be a party there tomorrow, too, to open the gallery. But I'll be there uh, on uh, the 9th. And that's potentially when we're going to have uh, the auction or the final results of the auction. If you want to bid on either the original painting, there's two separate auctions. One is for the painting. And the other one is for the numbered prints. And basically where we're going to do that is the highest bidder gets print number one. And then the 50th highest bidder gets print number 50. And if you're below 50, you know, you don't get anything. You just, you just got outbid. Uh, but you need to register in order to bid in the auction. And so you want to go to the website. And you can see, you know, the, the representation of the art and obviously the ordinals on the website. So you want to go to one, it's just the number one, not O-N-E, but a one, marketprice.com uh, forward slash golden. And that is the site where you can see uh, the image. Uh, and then you can register. Right now you can. I think starting on, on Friday, there'll be a registration page. So you can go to the website now and just check it out. But go back again on Friday if you want to uh, register to bid at the auction. Now, of course, do I think that, you know, these things are going to appreciate? Well, I think that the artist himself, you know, is a talented artist and he's sold a lot of work. Uh, there are a lot of people that collect his stuff now uh, and, uh, in, and he's sold them for, you know, decent dollar amounts. Uh, so in that respect, I think the art could gain in value. But what I also think, and this is kind of like a twist, but if it turns out that I'm wrong, you know, and 
Bitcoin actually turns into something that I don't believe it will. And if these ordinals end up having value in their own right, right, just like NFTs, which I don't think, but I think if I'm wrong, and obviously most Bitcoiners must think I'm wrong. In fact, I know they think I'm wrong. I, I get you know crap from them every day. Um, uh, so they definitely think I'm wrong. <laughs> they should be buying uh, these ordinals at a minimum, if not the original painting itself with the ordinal that is attached to that because there's only one of those, right? Uh, there's only one ordinal that goes with the oil painting. The other 50 go with the prints. But if it turns out that I was wrong, who knows what these things might be worth? Because I think I am the number one Bitcoin critic. In fact, I know I'm the number one Bitcoin critic because I asked ChatGPT. I went into ChatGPT and I said, who is the number one Bitcoin critic? And it came back and said, Peter Schiff. You know, so, it, you know, that that's what the uh, uh, um, artificial intelligence things, ChatGPS, GPT. In fact, I asked ChatGPT, who is the world's biggest gold bug? best known gold pun. And again, it came back with Peter Schiff. So I am the biggest, most well-known gold bug and the biggest, most well-known Bitcoin critic. And so I would think that a uh, ordinal that I created, you know, triumphantly raising a bar of gold and declaring victory of gold over Bitcoin. And if it turns out I was wrong, right, I think this is a major thing. I think this could have a lot of value in a world where I'm wrong, right? And now here's the original big uh, Bitcoin, you know, denier, you know, with his bar of gold in his hand. Uh, and look, you know, and he was wrong, but this is what he created. It's the only thing I've ever created and put on the Bitcoin blockchain. I never, you know, got behind any of these other coins. I've never done anything. And the only reason I'm doing this is because I think the actual prints, right? And the oil painting, yes, they have actual value, right? You could, you know, that's there. Whether or not these ordinals add any additional value beyond the fact that they make it easier to prove that you own the print and that it's not a fraud, I don't think so. But other people disagree with me. You have all these people out there that believe that, you know, Bitcoin is it, right? And including this artist, Market Price. He's a big Bitcoin guy. You know? so, uh, so I would think if I was a Bitcoin guy and I wanted to buy something, that might be worth a lot in the future where Bitcoin is right and Peter Schiff was wrong, I would want one of these. I would think it'd be a rare thing to commemorate just how wrong I was. Now, if I'm right and Bitcoin crashes, well, then I think the, the value is the art. But again, you know, gold could go way up. I'm still a famous guy. I could be a lot more famous in a world uh, where gold does what I think it's gonna do and I become even more uh, well-known for that. Um, you know, you got my original signature on this piece of art in addition to uh, the signature of the artist, you know. So it could be worth something a lot more than what people pay for it uh, in the future. So there, there's something real here. And, uh, and so, and I, you know, I'm doing this also because I like the artist. I think it's an interesting project. I'll see what kind of demand there is uh, for something like this. Maybe we'll do more in the future. I don't know. We'll see how how well this goes. But again, remember, I, I, I had this painting made uh, for myself and I, I, I like it. It's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a nice painting. It looks better in, in reality. So that's why, you know, you should go down. If you want to bid on the actual painting, you should go to the gallery in New York so you can actually uh, experience it 
uh, in real time, right? That not just looking at it on a paper. If, if all you want is the ordinal, then you know, you know. But again, you, you can't just get the ordinal. Everybody's going to get an actual print. You know, sometimes I saw a lot of these auctions when they were doing these NFTs, and all you got was the NFT. There was nothing. You were just buying the NFT. Here, you're buying the print, right? The NFT, as far as I'm concerned, that's just a freebie. I'm throwing that in, right? I'm selling these prints. You're going to get an NFT. Maybe it'll be worth a lot of money. I have no idea, right? I don't think so. But again, people in the Bitcoin community, you guys all disagree with me. So if I were you, this is what I'd be buying. I think that if I turn out to be wrong and you guys are right, these 50 ordinals are going to be worth a lot of money in a world where I'm wrong. So if you think I'm wrong, then this is what you should be buying. And, you know, uh, and if I'm right and you use your Bitcoin to buy these ordinals, which, you know, you could use your Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes to zero, at least you're going to have a print. Because if you just hold on to your Bitcoin and I'm right and they're worthless, you got nothing. At least you could take this print and hang it up on the wall, you know, as a, you know, as a testament to your stupidity, right? That, you know, you could have bought real gold, but you, you bought Bitcoin. And now all you have to show for your Bitcoin is this Peter Schiff print uh, of a bar gold. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Again, my next podcast is going to be uh, live from London over the weekend. I'm going to talk about the jobs report that's coming out on Friday. It's not going to be in the evening like I normally do because I'm six hours ahead. So it's probably going to be earlier in the day U.S. time because, you know, of, you know, the, the, the time change in the U.K. But I'm only going to be there for six days. Again, ironically, I'm talking at this blockchain conference in London uh, on, on Friday morning. I mean, the first thing I have to do, I have, you know, it's I think I talk at 830 in the morning, um, you know, which is like 430 my time or so. I'm you know, barely going to have any sleep going to do my talk. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, tokenized gold, about how you integrate gold into the blockchain and how that's uh, the solution that Bitcoin is in gold 2.0 gold is gold 2.0 gold on the blockchain tokenized gold cryptocurrencies backed by gold that's the future of blockchain as far as i'm concerned not bitcoin and again that's what my ordinals are claiming by marrying my gold and the blockchain i'm saying that gold is the future of blockchain uh not bitcoin but anyway when i get back from the uk i'll be back in connecticut for a while i'll be doing the podcast from here until on the 26th, I leave for about a month uh, vacation in Europe. And I'm going to take this uh, uh, laptop that I'm using now, uh, microphone and camera with me, and I'll be doing uh, my podcasts uh, on the road. Maybe I'll run into a few of you on my, on my journeys. Bye for now. 